0: is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is the final Spotlight Minisode for 2021. A recap of the year in True Crime, and some bloopers of my recording process during the year. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Catherine Slubber, Gaida de Huder, Lane Langdon, Jakub Boyens, Anita Lutchman, Joanne Van Zierner, Matt Bertrand Cohen, Peter Nieman, Jen, Stephanie Fermark, Jessie Knursen, Larisa van Bullion, Kath, Aisha Osman, Jenny Irving, CJ Barkhazen, Priya Govenden, and Bianca Fundamava for your support on Patreon, as well as Ilka Zenskiraly for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show with two online businesses offering 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements, designed, printed, and delivered by Print Crowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Kruger's Dorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. So 2021 has come to an end, and what a year it has been. I wanted to use this last minisode of the year to recap what's happened on the podcast and with me this year, chat about some of the big South African true crime moments that happened during the year, and then to end off, I'm going to share some of my recording bloopers with you so that we can finish 2021 off with a chuckle at my expense, which I'm totally fine with. 2021 for me was a year filled with lots of firsts from a creative standpoint, as well as for the podcast. In January, my first audiobook narration project was released. If you'd like to hear the story behind how that happened, as well as listen to the first chapter of the Krugersdorp cult killings by Jana Marks, that episode is still available in the feed that was released in December twenty twenty. I am a big consumer of audiobooks on Audible, and I must say that it was a pretty cool experience to hear my own voice on a book on that platform. When that audiobook was released, I had no idea how big a part of my life that case would become in the months that would follow. The Krugsdorp cult killings case was probably one of the most bizarre and complex true crime cases to ever hit South Africa and a documentary production company saw this and realised that there was a far deeper story to tell around it. In May this year, I was contacted by Showmax, and they shared with me that they were in the final stages of production on a documentary about the case. They had an idea that they wanted to create a companion podcast for the documentary and asked if I'd like to produce and host it. When I managed to regain my ability to form actual words, I said yes. And so began a three-month process of having to keep this huge secret from everyone about not only this amazing, groundbreaking true crime documentary that was coming, but also figuring out how to put together a podcast series that was essentially going to be the first of its kind in South Africa. Companion podcasts are pretty common in America. Very often when Netflix or Oxygen, for instance, release a new documentary, they'll partner up with podcasters and produce a podcast series that delves deeper into the subject matter discussed in the documentary. The television and film format is limited in terms of time and how deep you can really get into a discussion. And the podcast format doesn't have those limitations. So the two formats really complement each other well. And this is what Showmax had in mind for their new documentary, Devil's Dorp. So, full disclosure, yes, I got to see the documentary before it was aired, which was pretty cool, but I had to, because I had to know what themes to dive into in the podcast. Getting the opportunity to chat to all of the experts and those that had appeared in the documentary was an absolutely phenomenal experience. And honestly, it was a bit surreal. It was such an honour to be asked to work on this project. And I really felt, and still feel, so lucky to have been asked by Showmax to do this. The Devil's Dorp documentary launched at the end of July. And broke records and was the talk of the country for ages. I still had to keep the secrets of the companion podcast for a couple of days. And that was really difficult because we had this devil's door discussion post going on the Facebook group and you were all asking questions that I knew I'd answered in the podcast. And I was just busting to tell everyone, but I didn't. And on the third of August, I was put out of my misery. When we published the Devil's Dorp companion podcast, the response to the concepts and the podcast content itself went beyond my wildest dreams. And the series flew up the charts and topped both Apple and Spotify's charts in less than a week. I know that Showmax was really happy with how the pairing of the documentary and the podcast went. So fingers crossed in 2022, we'll not only be seeing more Showmax true crime originals, but also more companion podcasts. As a result of all the publicity around Devil's Dorp and the companion podcast, I also found myself exposed to a lot more media publicity this year, which was honestly weird and a little surreal, but also really good for true crime South Africa. In May this year, True Crime South Africa turned two years old, and I'm still completely amazed at what you and I have built here. Not only has listenership of the podcast increased hugely, but as a result, the amount of awareness around the cases we discuss has also exploded. You'll have heard me mention in previous episodes how, in some of the cases I've covered, New leads have been produced after people listen to the episodes. In 2022, I'll start doing update episodes in which I discuss some of the progress that's been made in cases I've covered in the past, but every time I hear that the podcast has prompted someone to say something, I'm re-motivated all over again to carry on. I know I say this a lot but I don't think I can say it too much. I know I tell the stories, but I literally could not do this without you, the listeners. So thank you so very much. And please know that by listening, sharing and supporting wherever you can, you are making a difference. That leads me into something else new that happened this year. You would have noticed that businesses and brands have started to sponsor episodes, and you would have heard ads for those brands in the podcast. Having these brands sponsor the podcast is a huge part of ensuring growth. The more I'm able to generate some form of income from this content, the more time I'm able to spend on this podcast and other related projects. I've been lucky enough that all of the brands that have advertised on the podcast this year have actually reached out to me. They wanted to be part of the community we built together, and they wanted their advertising revenue to go towards something bigger. And it did. In the new year, I hope to increase the number of brands I have advertising on the podcast, and that will likely lead to ad slots within the podcast itself. I want to clarify up front that I will never align myself with a brand I don't believe in. And although I know ad breaks can be irritating sometimes, please keep in mind that the brands I talk about on the podcast are aligning with the show because they believe in what we're doing here. They want to be part of telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. So whether you choose to skip over the ads or whether you find some value in the brands that advertise. I hope you know that it all really is for the greater good. As I possibly increase the number of ads in in the podcast, I will also offer an ad-free version of the episodes on Patreon. I'm really excited about what 2022 holds. I've had some very interesting conversations in the last few months – and I can tell you that I'm also working on a brand new podcast series. I'm not sharing any details yet, but I hope to have it out in January next year. It's not specifically true crime related, but I do believe that it's a topic that a true crime audience will also find interesting, and perhaps a bit more uplifting than most true crime episodes so it might become a series for you to listen to when the true crime stuff becomes a bit too heavy on occasion. Before I get into a true crime rap for the year, there are a few people I'd like to thank for their help throughout the year. True Crime South Africa is still very much a one-woman show, but over the last 12 months I've started to accept help in various forms which is a victory in itself for Control Freak Me, I'd like to thank Nadia Ai, Sabrina Shaw, Karen Lotta, and Emma Neville for your help with various aspects of the podcast this year. I am so grateful to each and every one of you. I'd also like to thank Paige Muller from Arena Holdings for her ongoing help and support throughout the year, and ensuring that every single TCSA episode has a short Times Live article to go with it. Thank you so much, Paige. Right, so let's chat about some of the major true crime moments that South Africa saw in 2021. January is always a month filled with hope and the promise of new starts. But for Chantal Ash and her baby daughter Tasneem, January 2021 was a nightmare end to their lives and for Chantal's family it was the beginning of a horrific fight for justice which still has not come to an end. The bodies of Chantal and her daughter Tasneem were found in the room of a lodge they'd been staying in with Chantal's husband Mohamed Nasir. A manhunt was launched for Nasir in connection with the murders and he was eventually captured but later in the year, he managed to escape, and to my knowledge, he is still on the run. You can learn more about this case in Spotlight, Minnesota, number 36. February is usually the month of love, but the Rousseau family of Port Elizabeth were receiving very little love when their trial for the murder of Pietras Schultz started in February 2021. Mother, daughter and son, Christine, Chantal and Wayne Rousseau, were accused of luring Pietrus to their home under false pretenses, murdering him and then storing his body in their deep freeze while they went out and bought McDonald's and brown meat with the money they would stolen from him. All three perpetrators were convicted of the murder. You can hear more about this case in Spotlight Minisode number 25. In March 2021, 51-year-old Cape Union Mart executive Renee Jane was found dead in her holiday home in Wolseley. She had been bound and it appeared that her death may have followed a home invasion. The home that Renee was found in was a holiday home in an exclusive estate in Wolseley and on the same night, another home had been broken into in the same estate and the owners of that home had also been tied up but they were found alive. I discussed this case in Spotlight Minisode number 29, and I'd like to say that there are some points in that minisode that are incorrect. After I released the minisode, I was contacted, and a few details were clarified for me. In the minisode, I mentioned that Renee's family had been through a very difficult time, even before her death, as her father had passed away, and her sibling had passed away in 2010. In the minisode, I mentioned that sibling was a brother, but it was actually Renee's sister. Another point that was incorrect, I've already corrected here, which is that Renee did not actually permanently live in the estate in Wolseley. It was a holiday home, where she and her husband sometimes spent weekends. In the minisode, I mentioned that someone had been arrested in connection with Renee's murder, but unfortunately that person was released without charge soon after, and to my knowledge, no further movement has been made in this case. In April 2021, a nine-year-old girl ran two blocks carrying her infant sibling. She entered her grandmother's house and hysterically tried to explain that her mother had just been abducted from their home. The child's grandmother called other family members who would eventually call police and then ran back to the child's home to try and figure out what was going on. In the hours that followed, a morning of horror would be unraveled. The girl's mother, 31-year-old Nadira Vanka, had been attacked in their home that morning while she was getting ready for work. Two men had entered, beaten Nadira, as well as the nine-year-old girl, and strangled Nadira's seven-year-old son until he was unconscious when he tried to defend his mother. The children were injured, but survived. Nadira was abducted by the men. An ensuing investigation would uncover that a security guard that worked at Nadira's block of flats and an accomplice had abducted her. When the men were arrested, they took police to Nadira's makeshift grave. When I covered this case in Spotlight Minisode City, the two suspects had just been arrested and charged with Nidira's abduction and murder, and the motive and circumstances surrounding her death were still not known. In putting together this Minisode, I looked for updates and could only find one court appearance for the suspects in June, and nothing else. In May 2021, the dismembered remains of a young woman were found in the Val River. Yolandi Bortas had flown into O'R Tambo in Kharteng from George on the 26th of April and disappeared. The 35-year-old mother of two got into an e-hailing taxi, was seen on one more occasion on CCTV at a shopping centre, and then she was never seen again. Part of her dismembered remains were found in the Vol River in early May, and a murder investigation ensued. Something that complicated this case, at least in the public view, was a bloody hotel room that was discovered in Kempton Park around the same time. I discussed the possible connection of this room and Yolandi's case in Spotlight Minnesota City, but suffice to say that although much was made of this room in the beginning, it's since been proven that the blood in the room did not belong to Yolandi. In fact, it belonged to a male, and very likely the occupant of the room, who walked away. Yolandi's case has been kept in the public eye throughout the year, but unfortunately we have not seen any arrests in this case. Halfway through 2021, we were all still struggling with dealing with the COVID pandemic, while also each month experiencing another shocking crime. In June of 2021, as South Africa started feeling the bite of winter, we thought we witnessed some justice in one especially shocking case. But when we looked a bit closer, that justice became questionable. This case is one that I have not yet covered on the TCSA podcast, but it will most definitely be coming up in 2022. In June, a man named Stephen Fortune was convicted for the abduction, rape and murder of 12-year-old Michaela Williams. He was given three life sentences for his vile crime and classified as a dangerous offender. But it would be revealed that although this may have been an appropriate legal consequence for the acts he had committed against Michaela... When we heard the grand total of what this man had done, labelling it justice seems a stretch. Stephen Fortune was on parole when he murdered Michaela. He had raped an eight-year-old girl in 2006 and attempted to murder her by stabbing her in her heart. If you think that this very act should have had this man considered someone very dangerous and hopefully someone who would never walk the streets again, you would be wrong. Fortune served just 11 years of his sentence for this crime and was released on parole in 2017. The mother of this 8-year-old victim was so horrified that this man was going to be around children again that she asked parole officials whether they would have any way of tracking his movements. She was told a bold-faced lie. Presumably to stop her from kicking up a fuss, she was told that Fortune would be wearing a GPS ankle bracelet. The girl's mother was absolutely correct to have been worried, because not only would Fortune go on to murder Michaela, but he admitted to having raped at least nine other children while out on parole. The dangerous offender classification, plus the three life sentences, means that it is highly unlikely Fortune will ever leave prison. But for at least 11 young girls, if not more, it is too late for that to mean anything. 2021 brought with it several cases in various stages of justice in which women were accused of killing their husbands. One such case happened in July, a 2 minutes drive from my home. On a Friday night in that month, Leon Nyokia was shot dead in his home. Initial reports said that a woman was taken into custody in relation to the crime, and several days later, it was revealed that this woman was Leon's wife, Mintal. Further media reports would indicate that Mintel had been released on bail, but had been mandated to go into private psychiatric care until a bed became available at Falkenberg Psychiatric Hospital for a thorough assessment. In Mintel's bail hearing, it was intimated that her version would be that she'd attempted to shoot herself on the night of the murder, and her husband Leon had tried to wrestle the gun from her and sustained a bullet wound in the process. The last update on this case was when Mintal went into a mental health care facility. In August 2021, Women's Month, we saw a seriously horrific case of intimate partner violence in the Eastern Cape. 23-year-old law student Nosiselo Mtebeni Was murdered and dismembered by her boyfriend. It would emerge that the man had killed Nocicelo after discovering messages on her phone which he believed were from another man, and he thought that they were proof of her infidelity. He dumped the woman's remains in several bags at a municipal dump site, but they were discovered by a passerby. During the investigation, police were able to determine that the messages that the perpetrator had believed were evidence of Nosicello's infidelity, and in some warped world a reason to take her life, were actually sent by him, a few months before the murder. I can only assume that they must have been sent from a number that wasn't saved on her phone under her boyfriend's name. When police proved to him that they had actually been his own messages, he apparently broke down. Now, if this wasn't so absolutely pathetic, I would be horrified at this man's reaction, because he went on to say that he now realized that he had quote, killed her for no reason. End quote. Um no. Either way, whether she was having a relationship with another man or not, you still killed her for no reason he clearly still thinks that if those messages hadn't been from him, he would have been justified in killing Norsicello. The offender did plead guilty and was sentenced to 25 years in jail. Spring in South Africa brings the promise of new life. Flowers bloom, everyone starts cleaning out their closets, and this year, the amazing Dion Wiggett launched the second season of his podcast, My Only Story, which would bring about a spring clean of a different kind. In the first season of Dion's podcast, he told his own story of abuse and rape at the hands of Willem Breitenbach. In season two, he told the story of Thomas Kruger, who committed suicide in 2018 while at a prestigious boarding school. In the weeks that followed the launch of the podcast series, The news was filled with case after case of various schools taking action against sexual predators at their schools who'd been identified in the podcast series. Unfortunately, much of the action seems to be the standard way that schools and other organisations deal with sexual predators. They fire them and move them on to other organisations to start their predation again, and legal action is rarely taken. Wigget's podcast, though, has opened up the proverbial can of worms, and rightfully so. And parents started sitting up and asking questions. And perhaps this is what is required for true change. In the education system, especially in private schools, the parents or guardians of a child are essentially the customer in the service exchange. And it is perhaps only when these customers start to demand that their service providers, the schools, take this issue extremely seriously and protect not only their children, but also children at other schools, that anything will change. And protecting doesn't mean making sure the predator no longer works at your school. Because if you are just passing the problem on to someone else, you can be assured that someone else is passing their problem on to you and your child. So if anything comes from Wiggett's podcast, which much already has, I think every parent needs to find out from their child's school exactly what plans they have in place to deal with sexual predators, how they vet new staff members, and whether they agree to lay criminal charges against any sexual predator in their school, and not just pass them on. If you haven't yet listened to Dion's podcast, My Only Story, I highly recommend it. Possibly the biggest case of October 2021 was the kidnapping of four young brothers in Polokwane. The four Moti brothers were taken by a gang of armed men when they were on their way to school in a vehicle driven by a driver employed by their parents. Very soon after the boys were taken, most believed that the kidnapping was either for ransom or to resolve some other disputes in which the Moti family may have been involved. I covered this case and also discussed kidnapping for ransom cases in South Africa in the mini-sode entitled Exactly That, Kidnapping for Ransom in South Africa, released on the 28th of October. The four Moti brothers were eventually safely released three weeks after they were taken and they were found in an area called Vuani, which is about 100 kilometres from their home. Speculations would be made in the weeks that followed about whether or not a ransom was paid and how much that ransom was, and several conspiracy theories have formed around this case. I think that what we can take from this case is that crimes of this nature are on the rise in South Africa, and my concern is that there will be amateur attempts at this type of crime with deadly results if criminals start to think that this is an easy payday. I'm really glad, though, that these boys are safely home with their parents. In November this year, a strange and heartbreaking case would start to play out both in the media and in court. This followed the discovery of the body of Vicky Terblanche, a young woman who was in the process of divorcing her husband, Arnold Terblanche. Initially, it seemed that Vicky had been murdered by her new boyfriend, Reinhardt Leach, but soon we heard that her soon-to-be ex-husband had also been arrested. Both men, including a third accused, a friend of Leach's, now stand accused of murder. It appears that the state alleges that Arnold to Blanche may have hired Leach to form a relationship with Vicky in order to first gain information about her to aid in his custody case and eventually to kill her when she refused to relinquish custody of their son. The case has been postponed to the new year, and I'll definitely be keeping my eye on this puzzling and tragic case. And to end off a year of true crime, in December, the so-called Stella murderer, Zander Belsma, reached the end of his appeal road when eight constitutional court judges declined to allow him permission to appeal his conviction for the murders of teenagers Chanel Howe and Mona Engelbrecht. This is another case I haven't yet covered on the podcast, but I have been researching it, and I can tell you that you can expect coverage on this case pretty early in 2022. Of course, these 12 cases are far from the only cases that made headlines this year, We also saw convicted murderer Jason Rhoda reaching the end of his appeals against his conviction for the murder of his wife Susan. We were kept morbidly entertained by the ridiculous antics of now-convicted multiple-murderer Rosemarine Blauvu. And we watched with furrowed brows as the husband of murdered KZN pastor Liesel Diaga went missing during the investigation into her murder, was found in a field and then airlifted to hospital, and then we somehow mislaid ten babies. The now infamous decouplets, which were touted as an African first in multiple births, and then caused many red faces when it appeared that they'd actually never existed. There is now a claim that some of the children were victims of human trafficking, although as far as I can see these claims are significantly unsupported. Phew, it's been a year for the books, that's for sure. Many tragic cases, many instances of justice, and also many instances where we have to wonder if justice will ever be served. I wanted to end off this minisode with some of my recording bloopers. My process when creating the podcast is to research, write the script, then record, and then edit the recording, so that you don't all have to hear my slip-ups, weird pronunciations that come out of nowhere, and interruptions from my fur children. I've been collecting my recording bloopers for some time, and I thought I'd share them with you. If you follow me on social media, you'll know that I had a bit of a difficult year when it came to my pets. I don't have any human children, by choice, so my three dogs... Roxy, a basset hound, Sahara, a Labrador, and Chumli a beagle, as well as my firstborn, Mufasa, a cat, are my furry children. When you adopt animals, often at similar ages, you don't always think about the fact that it's very possible that you're going to lose them at very similar times too. In September this year, my 13-year-old basset hound, Roxy, passed away in her sleep And a month later, we had to send our 13-year-old Labrador, Sahara, to the Rainbow Bridge due to health issues. During the year, Mufasa the cat, who's turning 17 this year, was very ill and on antibiotics for a month. And then our remaining dog, Cham Lee, who had been dealing with having lost his entire pack in the space of a month, suddenly completely lost his sight in both eyes. If you've ever been owned by, or even know, a basset hound, you'll know that most of them don't bark in the traditional way. They make a sound called baying, which is sort of a constipated-sounding howl, and it's definitely not the greatest backing track to a true crime podcast. Here are some clips I saved of Sahara and Roxy making their star appearances in true crime South Africa during Lynn's bail application it became clear that she plans to stick with a very specific <coughs> says that in her opinion there is never any hope of a serial murderer oh, no. many though walked away with healthy severance packages and that to make ends meet. It is in inviting your friends and family to listen and interacting on social media. This giveaway is coming to an end very soon, so get... Sahara and Roxy's ashes now sit on my desk, beside my recording equipment, so that they can still be a part of the podcast they so enjoyed starring in. Chun Lee is adapting well to his sudden blindness, and is a lot quieter than his sisters were. He doesn't like me closing my office door to record though, so it's very likely he'll be guest starring in next year's blooper reels. I often get comments about my pronunciation of words. Some not so nice, but often people tell me that they're impressed with how easily I seem to pronounce some tongue twisters. Well, in the interests of full transparency, I definitely do not always get it right first time. And the parts you don't hear are me trying to pronounce words and failing miserably like the time i tried to say baputswana james had a background in the military so he signed up with the police force in what was then the homeland of Bap- baputswana of Baputetsw- baput the homeland of but Bata- Baputatswana, Baputatswana. The homeland of Baput... Baput... The homeland of (laughs) (laughs) Baputats... The homeland of Baputatswana. Baputatswana. Of Baputatswana. Yay! I think my funniest moment of 2021 was when I was recording a Patreon episode and my brain suddenly decided to turn the perpetrator's name into a cold meat. Despite not being around family, or perhaps in part because of it, salami, salami. Salami, <laughs> salami. salami. The rest of that recording involved me desperately trying not to laugh every time I said salumi. I hope you enjoyed listening to my menagerie of recorded craziness. As I sign off for the year, I'd like to once again thank you so much for all of your support. I wish each and every one of you a very happy new year. Let's hope that it's one filled with justice for victims and resolution for families. Instead of leaving you with my usual end track from Prime Circle, I created a very special mix of my bloopers to play out the minisode. Enjoy, stay safe, and I'll chat to you soon. Salami Salumi Salami, Salami. <laughs> <laughs> The Homeland of Batsutsu. But to